I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. Dear Madam, I do hope you will forgive this presumptuous letter from a complete stranger. What I am about to write, Madam, may shock you no end. However, I am determined to lay bare before you a confession, my own, and to describe in detail the terrible crime I have committed. For many months I have hidden myself away from the light of civilization, hidden as it were like the devil himself. In this whole wide world, No one knows of my deeds. However, quite recently an odd change took place in my conscious mind, and I just couldn't bear to keep my secret any longer. I simply had to confess. All that I have written so far must certainly have awakened only perplexity in your mind. However, I beseech you to bear with me and kindly read my communication to the bitter end, because if you do, you will fully understand the strange workings of my mind and the reason why it is to you in particular that I make this confession. That was a passage from the opening of Edogawa Rampo's short story, The Human Chair, which was originally published in Japanese in 1925. The story is taken from the collection Japanese Tales of Mystery and Imagination, translated by James B. Harris, and published by Tuttle Publishing. The Human Chair is a tale of the grotesque in which a master carpenter entombs himself inside a chair in order to gain the intimacy that society has denied him. The longer he spends inside the chair, pressed close to the bodies of strangers, the harder it becomes to return to his ordinary life. As well as being a superb example of the uncanny tale, the Human Chair is a rich palimpsest that reveals layer upon layer of sexual, social and national anxieties. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this bizarre tale. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So, welcome to episode 14 of Sherd's Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, very good, Sam. Sitting in the um, crypt of the former church that I live in uh, feels very suitable for today's episode. Wow, yeah, my surroundings are not nearly so spooky. Although I do have (laughs) this creepy eyeless bust staring at me the whole time on my girlfriend's desk. But uh, (laughs) other than that... Eyeless or pupilless? Is it like a... Like yeah, pupilless, I should say. Yeah, it's it's pretty creepy. We've got a special Halloween episode for you today, uh, whoever you are, Mum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 
um, an extra episode this month and uh, we thought it would be nice to look at a piece of horror literature. Uh, so we're looking at a story by Edogawa Rampo called The Human Chair, which was published first in 1925. Uh, how did you feel about reading this one, Rob? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, certainly a strange one, isn't it? I mean, it, it made me feel very uncomfortable in in the ways that I think it's intended to and, and ways that it probably didn't intend to. Uh, I'm really looking forward to discussing it. I think there's there's an awful lot there. Yeah, I think I think uh, you were much more conscious of that un, unintended uh, discomfort than I was. I was just pretty freaked out by the the story. I read the whole thing in a while, while I was lying in bed, and I just found myself really unsettled by this thought of a, the proximity of a stranger. Yeah, I, I've I've known about Edogawa Rampo for quite a while now. I think our friend. Thogden recommended it to me well over a decade now probably when we were working in the bookshop and I never got round to reading him but uh, I was actually given this book from which we've taken the, the story Japanese Tales of Mystery and Imagination by one of my ex-students a really nice Japanese lady called Shiho um, whom I taught for a couple of years and uh, when she was leaving Poland to go back to Japan, uh, she gave me a copy of this. We, you know, we'd spoken about literature from time to time, and she knew that I liked Japanese literature. But how she managed to select such a perfect gift for me, I'll never know. I was really moved by it. Uh, it was really like, how did you know? You know, this is exactly up my street. So I was really pleased to receive it. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting story. And the more we've corresponded back and forth about it, the more compelling it became becomes for me sort of a lot richer than if it first appears i think but you know apart from that it's a really tightly constructed story i think and i was quite taken with the narrative voice actually i think this contrast between its formality you know it's told in the form of a letter for the most part and the depravity of the content is just so disquieting it's quite easy i think to to lose the fact that it begins the story begins as a letter and should feel very directly addressed I think probably I'm more of a fan of horror and the supernatural than than you in general in my reading taste. Would is that fair? Do you think? Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I wouldn't. I said I wouldn't say that I'm not a fan, but yeah, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. I'm kind of at my happiest when I'm really unsettled by a text. And, you know, I think people might argue that there's something almost cheap about that, but. I'm personally I'm so impressed by works of art that can change your relationship with the world in in a really palpable way. When you read a really great horror story or you watch a great horror film, the world becomes just slightly more alien for you in some way. You know, mm. it kind of actually temporarily bends reality into the shadows and you look at it differently and this story really did that for me like in very concrete terms i was actually sort of questioning my my surroundings it's uh, i think it's that effective personally yeah 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 i'd certainly agree i mean um, i'm sitting here on a, on a sofa in my house and it's um there is that sort of niggling feeling in the back of your mind that maybe all might not be quite what it seems i mean a wicker chair so uh it's not <laughs> is that to have you got rid of all soft furnishings in your yeah house yeah i had to, <laughs> i had the removal guys come around the, the, <laughs> the morning afterwards so <laughs> get rid of any leather in the in the house edogawa rampo is born in 1894 in Nabari, um, Mie pre- Prefecture. I'm, I'm hope, I hope I'm not entirely butchering that 
pronunciation. His real name is uh, Hirai Taro, and if it's not obvious already to anyone listening, this pen name Edogawa Rampo derives from a transliteration of a very famous American author. Did you notice that straight away, Rob? No. No. Or well, say say it to yourself a couple of times. Hang on, a wordplay in English. Yeah. Uh, so, Edogawa Rampo. Edogawa Rampo. Edogawa Rampo. I I can't hear it. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. Uh... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> so you didn't notice that? I didn't, I just didn't notice it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just obviously didn't give it enough thought, but yeah. Or perhaps I didn't say it out loud. Um, I'm quite bad. I mean, with um, see the previous episode where we spoke about Ridley Walker, mm. I really had to say an awful lot of the, the words out loud. I think um, whatever the reading voice I have in my head, it's it's not very... Uh, I don't hear the sounds, perhaps, or something. Yeah. So, um, so I, that's my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair excuse, mate. No one's judging you. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but also, interestingly, I don't know if you read the little... Well, there are two introductions. There's a preface to this text, a more modern preface. talks about how, actually, the ideograms of his name can also be translated to mean staggering drunkenly along the Edo River or chaotic ramblings, which I quite like. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> yeah. And apparently there's quite a tradition of writers choosing these weird self-deprecating ideograms that, you know, almost function like little word games. And this is a great example of that, I think. So, yeah, he attends uh, Waseda University and graduates in 1916 with a degree in economics and then works many sort of odd jobs it seems like you know he was a newspaper editor for a time a used bookseller um, an illustrator and even um, in particularly hard times a uh, peddler of sober noodles he didn't seem to do a great deal with his degree in economics <laughs> at least not immediately uh, but yeah at university he was an avid reader of um, western detective fiction um, and particularly Chesterton and Poe stories uh, you know, he and he chose this name because Poe can be considered the sort of grandfather of uh, detective fiction he's also considered to have written the first modern Japanese detective story yeah the first story that he ever published the two cent copper coin and it was immediately very popular and he goes on to become really popular and a very prolific writer of uh, mystery novels but also of what would you call it rob uh stories of the grotesque or the uncanny or would you consider this a straight up horror tale yeah it's hard isn't it because yeah it is there's something certainly grotesque about it and yeah it's not there's there's not really a supernatural element to it at all no so yeah no i think yeah certainly uncanny but whether yeah whether it counts as something like weird fiction or um i don't i don't quite know yeah i wouldn't quite put it in that category because it's there's no sense of sort of cosmic horror or unsettling experience with nature or anything like that it's very much a sort of psychological horror i suppose yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah i was also reading about reading about the period he's considered to be part of this movement known as ero guro nonsensu which is another group of terms derived from english so that's the erotic the grotesque and the nonsensical this movement sort of begins in the 1920s and 30s and he almost becomes a kind of spokesperson for it i was reading this article by jim reichert 
about that movement and he talks about two different interpretations of it there's one which sees it as a sort of glorification of depravity and immorality and it's a purely sort of popular form of literature you know designed to gratify these base urges but it's also some scholars see it as satirical literature or as a form of resistance against the growing totalitarian tendencies of the Japanese state in the 20s and 30s. I'm not the greatest historian, Rob, as we know, but uh, (laughs) the, uh, the reign of Hirohito begins just after the publication of The Human Chair and obviously it's a period during which we see a huge rise in sort of ultra-nationalism and, and fascism. But I'm not well-versed enough, I suppose, to say whether those tendencies kind of began before that era. But it's interesting to maybe consider the story in the, in the light of that, perhaps, as uh, transgressive literature, let's say. Do you know anything about that at all? I, no, I really, I really don't know that much. You know, just like a very sort of passing knowledge as it's you know as it fits in with kind of world history and what's going on at the time but um but yeah i think i think it's a really good point that this is definitely something that a lot of the things we're going to touch on in this episode are definitely it feels like this is a part of it like this um what's what's going on in japanese society certainly the relationship with the west the relationship of kind of like craftsmanship and, and tradition uh all these things i think obviously must must have been across the world and certainly in japan uh things that were being questioned and and being kind of pulled apart by society uh reshaped so yeah i think even without knowing enough about it we can probably comfortably say that there is um there is definitely something going on there this is my first encounter with this even with this movement ero goru nansensu but um it's sort of made sense of quite a few things for me i'm thinking of certain tendencies in japanese film and uh and anime in particular the kind of thing that i grew up watching my uncle tony sort of got me and my brother into some uh, pro- probably quite hard stuff for kids to be watching but uh, a lot of the anime i i saw had a really curious mix mix of eroticism and the grotesque it was quite a common element i don't know if you had much experience with those things as well as well but uh not yeah not not so much but it does definitely feel like it fits into a certain tradition of storytelling like japanese storytelling i suppose um, yeah that i've been exposed to definitely almost like elements of body horror uh, yeah I was things about to say that emerge. exactly that yeah definitely definitely <laughs> But anyway, so he seems to have had lots of literary success and uh, I saw that quite a number of his stories have been made into films, including this one, but I haven't, I haven't actually managed to track down a copy of it. Is it a feature-length film or is it a short? I'm not sure, you know. I did, I did look it up, but I didn't look at the, the runtime. Uh, yeah, actually, there, there are two adaptations of this story, one in 1997 and another one just last year, and they both seem to be... Japanese productions. One is 15 minutes long. That's the most recent ah, okay, one. Yeah. <laughs> and and the other is yeah, it's a full full length film. I'd be really curious to know quite how they because um, yeah, it's it's I think as you described, it's very tight. It's extremely succinct and it works very well. Uh, be very interested to know how you would extend that to a, a full film and kind of keep this weird sense of claustrophobia and, and uncomfortable um, 
yeah, I don't know how you would how would you maintain that atmosphere. Yeah, it's like a very very taut kind of narrative thread. You know, it feels like mm. it could snap at any moment. So yeah, it would be interesting to see how it's uh, um, I don't know elongated over the, the running time. But yeah, so he uh, he dies in 1965. I think he's still a very popular writer in in Japan, and people do seem to. Would you say people know him, Rob? Uh, maybe it's just the people we know know him. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I must admit, it's not it's not someone that I knew of that much before. So I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure within the right groups of people, he's certainly well known. But yeah, probably not sort of uh, internationally acclaimed. Maybe <laughs> no, no. But uh, I I have the impression that in Japan he's extremely highly regarded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly seems to be the case. And uh, there there is a prize um in his name as well uh in japan Ah, literary prize for the better part of each day i remained inside the chair sitting like a contortionist with my arms folded and knees bent as a consequence i felt as if my whole body was paralyzed furthermore as i could never stand up straight my muscles became taut and inflexible and gradually I began to crawl instead of walk to the washroom. What a madman I was. Even in the face of all these sufferings, I could not persuade myself to abandon my folly and leave that weird world of sensuous pleasure. In the hotel, although there were several guests who stayed for a month or even two, making the place their home, there was always a constant inflow of new guests and an equal exodus of the old. As a result, I could never manage to enjoy a permanent love. Even now, as I bring back to mind all my love affairs, I can recall nothing but the touch of warm flesh. Uh, since Poe is such a, an obvious influence on Edugawa Rampo, I thought it might be worth discussing the extent to which Poe was known during this period. And I'm going to draw quite heavily on a really excellent book, actually, I got hold of called... Poe Abroad, Influence, Reputation, Affinities, uh, edited by Lois Davis Vines, which collects an impressive range of articles on Poe's influence worldwide. You know, it has articles on Poe's influence in Croatia and Brazil and China, just everywhere. It's really fascinating. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I don't know if you if you come across those sorts of books before, Rob, because you know my university library had had tons of this stuff. You know, I, but I always think it's fascinating because it, it sort of leads me to lots of writers that I've never heard of. Yeah, absolutely. When when comparisons are made or when um, it's strange influence, because I suppose also as soon as you take something out of the culture that it is produced in into another one, it has completely different resonances and um, will mean very different things. Uh, and so you end up with really interesting responses. Yeah, and it ne- necessarily transforms into something different, you know, when it's informed by a, a different cultural uh, circumstance, I think. You know, sometimes in, in Poland, Stefan Grabinski is, is referred to as the Polish Poe, mm. but he's actually concerned with quite different things, I think. His whole collection just about about railways like horror stories or supernatural tales surrounding trains is quite something actually but um yeah so in japan according to this this book along with walt whitman edgar Allan poe was one of the most popular american writers during uh, the meiji and taisho periods so from 
the 1860s to the 1920s. Um, but the first proper translations appear in 1888 in a literary magazine, the translations of The Black Cat and Murders in the Rue Morgue. I don't know how you feel, Rob, but those, are, those just happen to be two of my least favourite Poe stories. Uh, have you read them both? Um, I've certainly read Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yeah, I can't remember. Actually, yeah, I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure if I've read the Black Cat or not. But particularly murders in the Rue Morgue. You know, I can recognize. I can yeah. recognize its. Uh, you know, its importance, particularly the influence of this detective or amateur detective, I suppose, Dupin. Do you remember how that story ends? No, remind me. <laughs> the killer is an orangutan. Oh uh, yes, yeah, of course, like, of course, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay, remember yeah, reading that for the first time. Yeah. I was like, come yeah. on. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, completely. It's um, yeah, requires a a real lead, and it feels like you've been. Yeah, no, I completely remember now. Of course, if it really feels like you've been cheated at the end yeah. of the story, like the whole, you know, you're waiting this conclusion, and it just ends up being something that you never could have guessed, and it's very implausible. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's just it's pretty ridiculous but yeah. that aside uh, <laughs> yeah those those translations were extremely popular and and really secured him as a sort of significant writer amongst Japanese readers and i suppose interestingly if those were the first ones and were particularly mur- murders in the room morgue you know poe didn't write that many d- detective stories most of them are tales of psychological horror a bit a bit closer to perhaps what we're what we're reading today, but you can imagine if that was one of the early translations that he might be considered more prominent as a a writer of detective fiction. But interestingly, someone who did a lot of a lot for Poe's reputation in Japan is Lafcadio Hearn. Do you know him, Rob? No. He's a Greek American writer, really celebrated in J- Japan actually, because he. He moved there, I think, at quite a late stage of his life, if I remember rightly, and um, married a Japanese wife and uh, learned uh, Japanese to fluency. And he taught at the Tokyo University, taught literature there. Lots of his work concerns Japanese folklore. Uh, I have two two of his books. I have uh, In Ghostly Japan and Kwaidan, both of which are published by the same publishing house, uh, Tuttle Publishing, that publishes the book we're reading today. But he delivered a series of lectures called Notes on American Literature in in the 1880s, which quite prominently included discussion of Poe's stories and a standalone lecture on Poe's poetry. So I think his stature as a writer really grew through that. There was also a biography of Poe in Japanese that appeared in the 1890s, it seems like quite a rapid dissemination of his work. It, it often takes mm. a long time, doesn't it? Yeah, but even within absolutely. the 19th century, it's already there. I don't know if we can say the same for the opposite direction. No, no, certainly not. And did it say, does that mean there was a lot in translation or is there a lot of people reading it in English? I think it's mostly in translation. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there are there are a few prominent translators. Um, unfortunately, I didn't make a note of the names. Um, I think of The Black Cat, it mentions that there are, there are nine different translations of it <laughs> by this stage. So, oh, wow. Um, one interesting thing that the article also makes reference to is Poe's influence on Japanese writers as um, you know like writers of the city or you know reflecting Mm. urban urban alienation and I think we can definitely see that in in the human chair yeah absolutely and it makes explicit reference to Akutagawa and Edogawa Rampa obviously but I remember quite a few years ago you very enthusiastically recommended an Akutagawa story spinning gears ah yeah of course 
yeah, yeah. And that's a very emphatically urban story, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 completely. It stands out of that collection, I think, that I have. I think it's translations by Jay Rubin. Most of the tales are either have rural settings or entirely imaginary settings or historical set- settings, but this is a very sort of modern urban story. I remember rightly that yeah. it has like a very psychological tenor doesn't it mm. yeah 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 completely again yeah maybe sort of not dissimilar in in atmosphere at least in terms of it's sort of very oppressive of course one of the one of the main things that did a lot to establish Poe's reputation is uh, the presence of Edogawa Rampo himself. And I found it quite funny in the preface to this edition, there's a story recounted in when someone is asked, I think a notable Japanese psychologist is asked, um, isn't it confusing that, you know, doesn't Edogawa Rampo get mixed up with Edgar Allan Poe? And the reply comes, oh, no, uh, Edogawa Rampo is much more famous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I think he's kind of uh, superseded his reputation somehow. Yeah, okay. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting to consider the extent to which Poe is, is, is known. So, yeah, as we've, as we've said already, it's certainly like a, a psychological kind of horror. And it starts very strangely. In fact, I had a very weird reading of it because I had started reading it one evening realised I was too tired, put it down, came back to it the next day. And I completely forgot that the beginning, we start with this female author who is reading a letter. So I, <laughs> I actually forgot that the story takes place within a letter, uh, which I think quite, <laughs> quite affected my reading of it and really made the end of it like this, this kind of big reveal but the reason I didn't realise is because we find ourselves very quickly in the uh, in the studio with this master craftsman, and the whole thing starts quite sedately. Very, perhaps specifically Japanese relationship with craftsmanship, and this craftsman's been asked to make this chair for commission. When it's finished, it almost falls in love with it or um, becomes so besotted with how amazing this chair is, he decides to amend it and quite literally become one with it. So he amends it so that he can live in it and truly appreciate that this life the life of the chair is going to have rather than continue with his own life and i guess there's a lot in there about class society and kind of the life of the craftsman compared to the life of the people that can actually afford to buy what he what he gives yeah he's very self-deprecating isn't he yeah so we have this incredibly strange image of um the the man living inside the chair. It's a peculiar image, isn't it, Rob? Yeah, really, really, really strange. Um, and I think it's it feels almost like the opposite of traditional body horror, where uh, the horror lies in kind of the outside coming in, being being revealed. Uh, you know, whether it's um, kind of blood and bone being exposed, or some kind of like uh, mechanical thing existing within the body. Uh, whereas here we have an inversion, we have the, the body existing within the object. Yes, uh, it really, I think as you said in the introduction, it really makes you start to, to look twice at things. It's kind of, yeah, the way it animates inanimate objects. It's very strange. It's just, it's just so horrifying, yeah. The only thing that actually I, I, I wasn't so taken about in the, in the narrative was the fact that although there's obviously a lot of psychological reasons that 
we have the opportunity to get a lot of psychological reasons why someone might choose to entomb themselves in a chair. The reason he gives is that he wants to be able to steal things from wherever he ends up. So it's the chair. He gives up his life for the for the life of the chair, uh, and he ends up in this hotel, and he becomes a very wealthy man purely by stealing the things from the from the wealthy clientele but for me this i don't know really really didn't ring true it didn't really seem like a particularly plausible motive would you agree with that yeah completely yeah i i also read the story twice and the second time round, i found that that part of it just almost to be superfluous because he's already outlined this idea that he's physically abhorrent you know that he's mm. he's very ugly and he can't find intimacy or human intimacy in a, any kind of conventional sense. So it feels like if he were trying to misdirect us in some in some way, then there wouldn't really be any need to do it at, at that stage after having revealed that about himself. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, especially like that being his kind of like opening statement, and then we find out that very quickly his his motives change whilst he's in the hotel inside this chair that he actually begins to derive an erotic sensory pleasure from people. Well, by the women in the hotel sitting on the chair and this becomes his reason for continuing and then of course the chair is sold bought by Japanese diplomat and he falls madly in love with the wife of the diplomat his interaction with the wife is purely through her sitting on him on on him inside the chair which she of course has no knowledge of and then it becomes apparent that the woman he's fallen in love with is of course the author the one reading and she finds out that you know, it's this horrible realisation that the chair she's been sitting on is, is perhaps containing a, a person. But before she can even decide whether she has the courage to uh, to verify this, another letter appears. And that letter says that this... Well, although actually, yeah, we should we should talk about what it really says. But it implies that the story is perhaps a work of fiction and that in truth it's uh, a manuscript that's been the letter itself is a manuscript that's been sent by an admirer of her fiction who wants some some feedback and wants to kind of give some enjoyment when you realize that the the chair obviously belongs to this female writer i thought that was really one of the most effective parts of the story is this real sort of rising dread almost mirrors the experience that she's having for you as a reader well i mean this is as i said at the beginning this for me there was like a real dual thing of being uncomfortable because yeah absolutely there's a yeah there's a real as as it dawns on you what's about to happen it's uh you know, really really horrible and then what you think might happen because you know what what is this person capable of but i also feel that and this is what makes me uncomfortable in in a completely different way is that the horror and the dread i think only works in this kind of gender configuration it for me only only works with the man inside the chair the woman outside uh, even a man inside the chair and a man outside I don't think has has the same power and when we first spoke about this putting forward our initial thoughts I think I described it as exploitative and and this is the this is the kind of point that I feel I suppose is that it exploits a kind of a certain disparity of of power between genders certainly at the time and it slightly veiled I think in quite how weird and horrible it is but in truth we have a stalker we have someone who you know, this is, there's a certain element of physical abuse. There's kind of uh, all sorts of things about consent, 
there's things which have been talked about for a long time but are really in the public eye at the moment mm. and for me this was the overriding feeling of, of discomfort was quite what was going on here and so although I felt really uncomfortable I've felt that as a man I I felt like I probably couldn't quite understand what this would mean to be in that situation. You mentioned this term gaslighting to me. Ah uh, yeah okay. I admit I had to look that up Robert and you know, I hadn't heard that term before. Can you explain what you sort of meant, meant by it in that context? Yeah and when I suppose it's about being able to completely alter someone's reality or, or well not alter completely undermine someone's understanding of their reality what happens when you do that from a position of power like the, the kind of control that gives you so for me even at the end when he you know claims to be this admirer he's planted this seed of, of paranoia or of horror which you know even for us as readers can't quite shake so imagining for a second that this is a, a real situation for the female author what that does to her view of the world it just completely undermines her own reality. It makes things very unstable. From the point of the master craftsman, obviously there's like a, a fairly simple thing of kind of abuse, really. But from this other author, it does something very, very different, I think, and almost more abusive because it, it feels very threatening. And the the idea that he just wants her opinion rings slightly hollow to me because of kind of what it implies so for you is a kind of it's doubly abusive even if it hasn't physically happened so if it has physically happened then it functions as a form of sexual harassment or something like that yeah completely but planting this seed is almost is almost abusive in a in a, in a more powerful sense yeah it? i think i mean it's hard to <laughs> don't want to make a hierarchy of these no things. no but for me yeah, but, but for me yeah. yeah i don't know it feels like there's a there's a strange undermining it adds a threatening question because of course as we've discussed both things could potentially be true there's a certain ambiguity there that all of this about the chair could be true and it could also be that it's then become the the fuel for this story do you know that at times Rampo stopped writing entirely because um he was so appalled at his own work wow and he would take <laughs> he would take years off and and could just go traveling because he felt that what he'd written was so depraved. Yes, yeah, it's very interesting. Because it's, uh, it's also very difficult to know, because there's a certain idea of femininity, I think, within the book. Almost as soon as it starts, we read that uh, this author is reading her letters kind of dutifully out of a deep feminine sense of consideration. Yeah. Uh, and that's obviously very of its time. And we learn very little, in fact, about this author, really. But I w- it would be really curious to know what Rampo's contemporary sort of disquiet was. Whether it came from that source, I, I, it's sort of doubtful, yeah. isn't it? Because I thought it would be interesting to consider whether the, the thrill is purely sexual in, in nature or not. But mm. in your reading, I suppose that's sort of irrelevant or besides the point whether this figure, the the, the writer of the letter, is actually deriving sexual pleasure or not it functions almost in the same way right uh yeah i suppose because i think the the twist is about un- undermining someone's grasp <laughs> grasp on reality or creating a creating a situation like an extremely paranoid or scared situation so yeah i suppose although i think it is still something worth discussing because it is so much a part of this of this book and i guess there's so much in it about i guess yeah like 
attitudes towards sex and attitudes towards gender. Because, of course, we do learn at the beginning of the book that this is a very successful female author who eclipses her husband, who's a diplomat. So it's hard to know exactly whether Rampo just hasn't thought of this or whether it's a product of his time or whether there's elements of satire here or... Do you think it's purely sexual or primarily sexual at least? I don't think so. I think there is a strange undercurrent of feeling like he deserves this closeness or an intimacy, but the only way this can happen is is by disguising it through literally being inside a chair so no i i don't think so the section in the hotel where he talks about all the different guests and um talks about this this dancer that the kind of like almost taxonomy of, of pleasure that he gets from all these different types of bodies it's yeah it's very hard to know but I, yeah i don't know what what did you think well I, I just thought it was interesting that to begin with he doesn't describe female bodies at all you know the first mm. first description of being sat on like that is um of this muscular you know heavy set man and he does seem to derive at least a kind of fascination from that situation as well mm. it's almost sen- sensual he just he says with just a thin layer of leather between the seat of his trousers and my knees i could almost feel the warmth of his body as for his broad muscular shoulders they rested flatly against my chest while his two heavy arms were deposited squarely on mine i can imagine this individual puffing away at his cigar for the strong aroma came floating to my nostrils we also have to remember he's also stripped to the waist within Oof. this chair and also kind of performing all of his uh, bodily functions within it and although it, it takes on a distinctly sexual character later i think that's not absent from from that description description of the warmth of his body and an emphasis on on his figure and it almost seems like or later in the story the thrill of a sort of non-consensual intimacy is perhaps the more addictive quality for him than than sexual gratification yeah i think there's definitely and i mean something obviously changes i guess the transition from the hotel to this private house is seemingly the point where you know he describes them as his his love affairs and perhaps he's described himself as an ugly man and you know even the uh, women in the in the street obviously sees himself above despite being seemingly one of one of them that you know they won't even look at him and so perhaps it's uh, never experienced this kind of intimacy and so approaches it almost like a like a collector the way he describes the the different types yeah. of bodies there's very little judgment in fact he talks about how in day-to-day life women are judged by only two categories the plain and the beautiful or something similar and he then begins to describe you know says that if you if you can't see the person but your involvement with them is only through touch how your you know the quality and the range of this kind of judgment well no judgment is the wrong word the quality and range of engagement perhaps is, is broadened but i think there's a there's a very funny moment when his decision to stay in the chair justifies staying in the chair when it leaves the hotel and he says that when i reflected deeply on all the pleasures which i had derived there i was forced to admit that although my love affairs had been many they had all been with foreign women and that somehow something had always been lacking i then realized fully and deeply that as a japanese i really craved a lover of my own kind now, I read this fairly straightly and when you were discussing in the kind of opening section, uh, yeah, this, this element of satire, I suddenly realised maybe something slightly different 
and that actually this whole character may be something different from what I expected. Or, yes, not not so much from what I expected from, from how I'd originally read it. But then, yeah, this does seem to be the shift that when he meets the Japanese woman, the intellectual lady, as he describes her, this, yeah, this really shifts, I think, from quite a, an objective way of looking at the people or, like, quite objective way of engaging with the people that sit on the chair to suddenly something that he sees as love and begins to imagine that it's returned purely in the way that she sits on the chair and the way that she engages with the chair that she she loves the chair and therefore might love him i think that transition is just it's just fascinating from the combination of anonymity and intimacy which i think sort of echoes something about urban life uh, necessarily you know because of the proximity with which you live with strangers without ever really knowing or understanding any of them and i think it transforms into something different but when i was thinking of it as, a, as an example of a stalking narrative which some people would say sort of begins with uh, with a post story man of the crowd i don't know if you know that one Robert, yeah, yeah 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 which i just think is i think is absolutely fascinating but uh, someone whom i know very well actually brand brand nickel has a book called stalking about different examples of it in in fiction and in and in cinema as well and he explicitly makes a connection between those two things between stalking and urban life I hope he won't be too embarrassed by my quoting his work, but um, he writes, The fear of stalking is a byproduct of urban mass culture, and its roots can be traced through stories like The Underground Man, the Dostoevsky story, Our Mutual Friend and Man of the Crowd. They show how the streets of the modern city provoke fantasies about the other, fantasies which are integral to stalking behaviour. The city teases out our ambivalent desires about our relationship to the strangers with whom we share our space. It is this ambivalence that provides the foundation for modern stalking culture. Contemporary narcissistic existence is really a magnification of the basic elements of urban modernity as it emerged in the 19th century. So I think that is absolutely present in this section in the hotel. But I think it's developed really interestingly in two two different ways i suppose the fact that in the story it's no longer simply the urban space that nurtures these fantasies but but that anxiety is allowed to cross the border into a domestic space and reaches a sort of frightening degree of intimacy you know i, I mentioned to you this idea of surveillance is carried through into a kind of tactile realm and it's the it's primarily the sense of touch and uh, less so, I suppose, hearing and smell that you know through which the narrator develops its non-consensual intimacy. But Brand Nickel goes on to talk about the, the ways in which the modern world has compounded these anxieties in the form of the media we consume. We consume. I thought about how this relationship that he develops with the the writer becomes almost an example of parasocial interaction. Do you know that term, Rob? I've sort of recently come across it no no so it's um it's sort of a term in psychology to describe the phenomenon of i suppose celebrity figures ah yeah okay with whom a a mass audience feel they have some sort of personal engagement but it's it's very much one-sided yeah i mean this is absolutely the kind of parallel that i picked up on reading this definitely so yeah yeah and i think sort of reading it now you know because that phenomenon sort of necessarily has gained heightened currency you know when we think about the ubiquity of social media or something and the sort of the way we interact with avatars or 
imagined or idealized images of of, of real people mm. and that maybe that is what's going on with the female writer with whom he becomes more intimate and it becomes she becomes you know it becomes very targeted stalking i suppose in that sense and takes on a much more emotional character um, so i think that that transition is is just fascinating in in the story Gradually, I came to want to convey my feelings to her, somehow. I tried vainly to carry out my purpose, but always encountered a blank wall, for I was absolutely helpless. Oh, how I longed to have her reciprocate my love. Yes, you may consider this the confession of a madman, for I was mad, madly in love with her. But how could I signal to her? If I revealed myself... The shock of discovery would immediately prompt her to call her husband and the servants, and that, of course, would be fatal to me. For exposure would not only mean disgrace, but severe punishment for the crimes I had committed. I therefore decided on another course of action, namely, to add in every way to her comfort, and thus awaken in her a natural love for the chair. As she was a true artist, I somehow felt confident that her natural love of beauty would guide her in the direction I desired. And as for myself, I was willing to find pure contentment in her love even for a material object, for I could find solace in the belief that her delicate feelings of love, for even a mere chair, were powerful enough to penetrate to the creature that dwelt inside, which was myself. And what did you, did you make anything of this, um this particular national side to it do you think this was um do you think we we know enough to say whether this is serious or is this uh, is this rumpo kind of sending up his own character well i mean i i read a little i tried to find out something more about japanese attitudes to to western culture and westerners in general in, in this period not with a great deal of success but one thing i came across was a chapter in a book called purloined letters by mark silver which ties together that sort of ambivalence within the story because i think it's definitely it's definitely something you notice amid immediately isn't it that mm, pronounced yeah. emphasis on on westerners you know the, the chair is a western chair yeah in a westernized hotel exactly yeah it was actually run by uh run by a foreigner and all of the patrons of the hotel are are foreigners and is there perhaps like a, a slight element of i don't know do you think do you think this craftsman feels annoyed or or kind of like unfairly treated in some way that he his skills are being asked to to be put to work for this kind of western chair rather than maybe something more traditional or something of his own design i think it's a really ambivalent relationship you know i I was sort of wondering i suppose quite specifically about whether it would be considered as a greater or lesser transgression to gain sort of sexual gratification from that intimacy with foreigners in particular Mm. you know if you look at the language surrounding this european woman uh one of the first he describes this like a really undeniable sexual sexual element to it he says i realized i was present in the same room with a european girl whom i had never seen my skin virtually touching hers through a thin layer of leather inside the chair i could visualize myself hugging her kissing her snowy white neck if only i could remove that layer of leather but then directly in the next paragraph he refers to those experiences as unhallowed it's really suggestive of 
something that is morally transgressive. Is there also an element of um, this thing of kind of the other being seen as, as somehow either not human or, or not of the same order as the, the person doing the judging? And so therefore it's kind of both unnatural but also okay to do something debased with that, you know, like a certain type of objectification. Yeah, I think that that sort of cross-cultural objectification is like a really common phenom- phenomenon, isn't it? Mm, yeah, absolutely. This idea of, you know, of the exotic representing the promiscuous somehow. But normally that's so informed by power relations, mm. power relations or hierarchy between the two countries or two cultures, I suppose. And here I wasn't really quite clear on what the relationship status-wise is between the two cultures but this is i suppose what i wanted to mention that i read in that book by mark silver he connects that ambivalence that you can see in the story with with something that's going on in japan or in japan's relationship with the west during the 20s and 30s you know that i suppose at the end of the 19th century early 20th century there's a sort of really rapid westernization of japan yeah as it uh, feels itself mm, I want to put it in the right terms, I suppose, but feels that that is the that is the route to modernization, mm. perhaps through westernization to sort of be able to compete on the world stage. Perhaps is that fair? Am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. Certainly, in a kind of like emerging globalized world, it's seen certainly that there's one way of doing things. There's one way of of kind of existing in this modern world. So there's a certain amount of uniformity that happens so yeah that at this period there's a strong kind of backlash that emerges uh, among sort of politicians and well, certain politicians and intellectuals and this this uh, term that gains currency again i'll pronounce it probably incorrectly but say your kabure which which means the western infection and some people consider this to be the sort of direct contribution to a loss of Japanese cultural identity. But um, yeah, Mark Silver also mentions that it puts Rampo in quite a strange position because he's so clearly indebted to a Western literary tradition, mm-hmm. but also like, harbours these really deep misgivings about the West. And even goes on to talk about how by almost becoming this western chair is in a sense trying to claim western identity by physically merging himself with it but as to whether we need to read that statement of the of the narrators that he needs to be with a woman of his own kind in a kind of straight sense or as something satirical it's very very difficult for me to say yeah um, with my sort of limited knowledge of the context i suppose i was just thinking as you were saying that whether um this kind of attitude to both take up even within your own name this kind of like western writer or this you know this somehow other but you know to be able to similar to hold this seemingly contradictory position of being both enamored by something but also to consider it beneath you was kind of what i thought was going on at the end of this story exactly that there's this letter being sent to the woman saying you know i'm an admirer and uh, you know the, the manuscript that's been sent is uh, a humble attempt at fictional writing 
if you would kindly comment on it, I shall know no greater satisfaction. So there's this, you know, seemingly very humble plea for, for some kind of recognition. But at the same time, what is actually happening within this plea is like a like very dominating, very threatening, disempowering of her position, which I think is definitely something that happens in this kind of fan culture that you brought up, that there's certainly a, like an obsession, a devotion, which those inside it will see like as a as a love that's two-sided but as soon as that person steps out of line within the context set by the by the fans kind of saw this recently with taylor swift when she's put out this thing endorsing democratic nominees for senate position i think she had a big seemingly quite a big right-wing fan base who instantly turned on her and that became you know the the abuse was extremely misogynistic and so you feel that you know underlying what seemingly was a reciprocal love was always this very misogynistic power structure and it really feels like this very similar thing for me anyway reading it now feels like it's a very similar thing that happens that underpins what is you know very real horror in the story i'm quite i suppose flabbergasted by uh (laughs) by the depth of this this story actually when you really consider it because on the first reading obviously i was just kind of quite swept up in the narrative but when you go back to it you notice all of these little complexities and and tiny things that are mentioned that really kind of unfurl into so many interpretations i think it's just fascinating yeah There is a, a certain narcissistic element to his to his character that, you know, his relationship with others is really perhaps a relationship that exists within his head. And I found this, this idea of craftsmanship within that really, really interesting, kind of like Narcissus Pygmalion type thing where, you know, he's created as a master craftsman who is very humble, but also wants us to know that he is actually extremely adept. But he's created this object which he, you know, almost loves or wishes to see other people love or love him via the proxy of this object and i found it yeah really interesting way of of talking about craft and craftsmanship obviously a very old one if we talk about pygmalion but yeah in the in the japanese context as well this kind of the way that craftsmanship is very much linked certainly as far as i understand Shinto religion kind of permeates every element of everyday life and comes to a head in in these kind of like master craftsmen. I suppose the things that are most well known would be something like calligraphy, where there's a kind of like a ascetic beauty in the in the brushstroke, and this represents values that are kind of held within. Shinto religion. I think one of the things that struck me so much about this story is how close, like when you imbue an object with that much mystic or religious power, how close that is to becoming horrible. And I suppose this is something we see a lot in European horror stories, like what prevalence of, of churches and uh, religious icons. I think something like M.R. James is obviously like completely built on this yeah or uh barbara of the house of grebe do you know that thomas hardy story Mm, i haven't read it actually no there's a young woman who plans to marry this man who's below her station and he's taken on a tour of italy to sort of better himself by her father and while he's away he has this horrible accident which disfigures him 
completely and when he comes home he's wearing this mask and he won't take it off because he fears that she won't love him and and when he does she's just absolutely horrified and he dies and then her new husband uh, has a statue made of of that young man maintaining the disfigurement in his face because she believes her still to be in love with him and you know wants to sort of banish her desire or remind yeah. her of that disfigurement and this, this so this statue becomes comes to sort of uh, mechanism of that you know i don't know if that's really no no no, no <laughs> absolutely no no completely i mean exactly exactly this that, yeah and so yeah what way this story really makes you sort of start to question this um, yeah this strange kind of like animism or the, the kind of like latent threat in the most unexpected of objects um, like a, a chair something that you'll use every day um, yeah it's really really amazing I think that it makes that switch you know it's a very very small jump but I'd be really curious to know what kind of resonance that has in Japan kind of mythic or oh, sorry mystic object because I think from being there earlier this year and seeing the kind of reverence which is paid to all sorts of ceramics and um, well, almost every element of life you can imagine has at some point been elevated to this seeming status of religious ceremony and you can get the finest grade of everything that's that's used to kind of perform that and so within that this, this masterpiece of a chair for me anyway maybe fits into into that thinking about objects and about use and what happens when that becomes horrible or, or the life which is imbued in it is is not good basically <laughs> Is uh, you know a devil a devil within the um, within the object rather than a god or um, goodness? Are you also thinking of it sort of on the consumer side? The fact that to buy such a chair, which is described as having a sort of dignity, even after even though it's second hand after mm. having been used at the hotel, that you know to buy it as a sort of status symbol and then be betrayed by it functions as a kind of revenge somehow. Or... Ah, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that at all, but that's really interesting, really really interesting. Yeah, because I suppose the um, I mean, and this really taps into the thing I was thinking about this the the kind of craftsman perhaps feeling a certain you know, like he was being asked to perform a task beneath his station by creating this western chair that perhaps there's a certain revenge in polluting or diluting the religiously revered craftsmanship with something which isn't suitable which again yeah puts us into very muddy <laughs> muddy territory because it all starts sounding quite fascist um and perhaps this is this is the point uh, that it reflects certain political elements things that are going on at the time but yeah it is i mean i absolutely agree with you there is there is so much and it's a short story to, to kind of pull apart yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to to reading more of his work actually i'm not much of a reader of detective fiction at all mm. i'm kind of more interested in the grotesque side of side of his work but i think most of the stories in this collection are actually of that character i know we've talked briefly about the ending mm. But did you feel inclined to read it one way or the other uh, when it uh, transpires that that it could be simply an attempt at fiction? Yeah, I read it. I read it straight. I think because for me that was where the kind of the most horror lay the the kind of horror horror of ambiguity. Because I guess the the horror lies in in kind of not knowing for me anyway. 
Yeah. That, you know, the act of someone being inside the chair is horrible and knowing it is horrible. But what's the most horrible of all is is the is the not knowing, is the, the fear that it could happen or it might happen in the future or it could have already happened. All yeah. So yeah, for me, I think I, I did read that it was um, the fiction side of it at least was was true, but it the way it was presented as these double, you know, this this manuscript followed by a letter was the thing that created a very powerful effect. Well, I also find it quite emotionally consistent that that he might just lose his nerve. Mm. You know, at the very end of the story, uh, sorry, the very end of the letter, he describes he he says he'll be pacing round her apartment in this in the streets, mm. like waiting for her to to give him the signal. It felt like quite a real possibility that he would actually be frightened of actually confronting her at the end as well. So I, I really like the fact that both possibilities are there, and I, I agree that it's probably most powerful because of that ambiguity. But I like the plausibility of both options, I suppose. How many shirts, Rob? How many shirts? For the human chair. I think this, I hope this isn't too controversial, but I think I'm going to give it a five because I, as a story, I thought, yeah, like really beautifully written and um, and very powerful. For me, there was just this inescapable thing, though, that I still feel that so much of its effect is exploitative in a certain way and I couldn't, I couldn't quite shake that. And I guess it's, you know, it's a product of its time uh, it's something we spoke about in the very first episode when we spoke about flower phantoms, uh, and it's really difficult to know what to do with because how you know I would definitely I definitely think this is a, a story that deserves to be read. I don't know how I justify those <laughs> that those things like how you know, um, but for, yeah. So for me, that's why it's it's just a five. The five is solid five for for weirdness and for quality, but it loses five because it uh, made me feel uncomfortable in the wrong way. Wow, you're you're pretty harsh, Rob. Yeah, I can sorry. completely I can respect <laughs> that though. For me just the the premise alone has got to give it has got to put it into the range of 7 and I'm yeah. going to add another one for uh another shirt for for depth. I'm 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 just really taken with the the sort of multiplicity of, of readings that this this text offers. So uh I guess we'll have to average it out at what a 6. Yeah. <laughs> 6 shirts for the human chair. Definitely something worth reading. I'll, I'll be recommending this actually particularly to Brand Nickel who wrote that stalking book. If he hasn't already read it, I think yeah. this is definitely up his up his alley. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my five to stop people. I think it's, it's really worth reading and to, to kind of make your own mind up because it, it certainly, as hopefully this episode has shown, it's, it's very ambiguous, um, and it is just a fantastic story too. Yeah, we hope this Halloween episode was spooky enough, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you too. We hope you've enjoyed this special Halloween episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Sherd's Podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Shared podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.